come on this journey with me. Each week when you join me, we are going to chase down our goals, overcome adversity, and set you up for a better tomorrow. Fasten your seatbelts. I'm ready for my close-up. Everyone knows we have to experience moments of failure to get to the success we so desire. But how do we actually manage the failure? Not give up because of the failure? And know the difference between a misstep that we can grow from or when it's actually time to tap out? I've talked about the topic of failure many times on this show and in my life. And if you're having this experience right now, or struggling with the idea of confronting failure at all, then I've put together a handful of the best pieces of advice from some of my most successful guests who not only know the experience of failure very well, but will share with you their tactics to treating it as a valuable part of the process, including yours truly. I know this one's going to help you. If you like this episode, please leave a review, share it with someone that it can help. That way I know I'll create more of them like this. Let's go. Meet a different guest each week. What I've found, and maybe this is just me being brutally honest throughout the process, but I think because I've had street credibility of my organization going through the ranks, I started as a BDR. For people who don't know what a BDR is, can you explain that? A business development rep, or might be known as a sales development rep, but it's a fancy term for cold callers. As I like to tell people that enter the org, I say my first year I made cold calls and cleaned the toilets, which is partially true. And I've always had a lot of confidence in what I was good at. And that was originally cold calling. And then I you know, sold for my organization. And then I was a frontline leader and a second line leader and so on and so forth. But I also was never afraid to admit what I didn't know. The real buzzword out in the LinkedIn world is vulnerability, Right in the last couple of years. And I think I was doing vulnerability before it was cool. It was just my way of not over-promising and under-delivering. I wasn't going to tell someone I knew something that I didn't know. And the thought of imposter syndrome is simply the feeling that you're unworthy or you don't exist. And everyone has that to some degree. I have that talking to you right now, right? It's like, what can I bring to Heather Monahan's world? So I certainly appreciate the opportunity, but There's also a voice inside of all of us that should encourage us to dampen that because when you get that imposter syndrome feeling, it really means you're out of your comfort zone. It means you're doing something you haven't done before. And usually when we're proud of an accomplishment or an experience we had, it was something that was uncomfortable initially. And uh, we look back on it going, hey, I wasn't sure if I could do it, but maybe I failed or maybe I succeeded. But either way, you got to give yourself credit for taking the shot. Well, just your own journey, right? Starting out as someone jumping into the cold calling world, which P.S. Hey, I've been there as well. You know, I'm sure on day one, you weren't the best cold caller with the best closing rates, you know, out of everyone. Of course. And that's part of it is having the thick skin to take the rejection and, and really being okay with failing, looking at failure as the opportunity to learn, right? The cliche is it's not what happens to us, it's how we respond. But that's true in a lot of cases. And, you know, sales is a good microcosm of life where you're going to go scrape your knee a little bit and it's how do you how do you react and are you going to change your approach next time based upon what you learned? And from that, you build confidence from there to approach it differently the next time. And you also figure out that failure is not as scary as people think, right? People are embracing for, oh God, how bad is it going to be? Or the rejection. 
And once you find out that the show goes on the next day, it gives you a little more perspective to have more confidence, to take more risks. So true. It's like anything. The more times that you're at bat, the more comfortable you're going to get when you step into the batter's box. It is no different with failure. Although I definitely had a very different opinion of it, you know, when I was back in quote unquote corporate America. But I want to jump in a little bit more to the imposter syndrome to hear your thoughts on my experience with imposter syndrome was, I remember I was advocating for myself to be promoted from executive vice president to chief revenue officer. And I remember thinking, am I even qualified for this? You know, I don't have a master's. I'm younger. Back then I was younger than the other people, you know, at the C-suite level. I didn't have as many years experience in the company as they did. So I second guessed myself, but there's something probably from the competitive nature of who I am that pushes myself into these situations, even though I don't know if I'm qualified. So there was always that trepidation and fear. What if they actually say yes, then what? And so they ended up saying yes. And I'll tell you, this was a game-changing moment for me, Andrew, was when I finally was appointed to the C-suite position and my first big you know, executive meeting as a C-suite executive, I realized, wait a minute, this is the biggest scam going. I get paid more. <laughs> I have more resources. I have more autonomy and control. Wait a minute. It's easier at this level, it would truly was, it was actually easier and it is the biggest scam going. And so that's one thing I want to impart on everybody. I was so wrong. I was overqualified for all the reasons why I thought I wasn't because I was bringing my unique skill set to this table that needed it, desperately needed it. And I was actually already doing the work just with a, a more junior level title. So a lot of this stuff is just, it's not real. It's built up in our minds. I asked you to try to find your passion. I think that in the world of online marketing and with social media, you know, obviously online entrepreneurs use social media to promote their brand and to grow their business. And so obviously the focus and the goal is to show how well you're doing, to talk about what's working, to showcase all the highlights of your brand and of your life and of your business. And that's great. And it works, right? It works for all of us, but you know, as our company went from seven to eight figures and I began to realize like, okay, like I play a role in the conversation that is happening in the online space. I have a responsibility to actually let people know what it takes to build an eight-figure business, to run a team that is, you know, spanned across the United States and, and serve thousands of clients and all of these things. And I kept hearing all of these online influencers and course creators and, and people that have a huge voice in the online space saying, you know, it can be easy. It's going to be so fast. You know, you can do this overnight. Like, you know, and I started thinking to myself, I couldn't imagine if I was a new entrepreneur that was coming up today that was working really, really hard to build my business. And it wasn't happening overnight and it wasn't easy and it wasn't happening at hyper speed. And it felt a little stressful along the way. And I, and I really put myself in the operating reality of what is the experience of the online entrepreneur that's not yet where we are, right? We came to the other side. Like I already fought all the battles and went through all the scars and the wounds and made it to the other side. But how many entrepreneurs are having 
depression, anxiety, thinking about quitting their businesses, wanting to give up because the perception online is that it's easy. You barely have to work. This is going to happen overnight for you, right? We all just hang out in our Lambos and in our private jets and sit on islands. There's really no work to be done. We actually can't find anything to do with our time because it's so easy, right? So I just realized, you know what? I'm going to do something different here. I'm going to be a truth teller. So I just started like two and a half years ago, really talking about like what the true experience of entrepreneurship is and telling stories of, you know, just mistakes that I've made and failures that I've had and struggles and setbacks. And, you know, I I feel like when you have a voice, you have a responsibility to use that voice for good. And I do use my voice for good. Obviously, I help people build wildly successful businesses. That's what I do for a living. But there's a whole nother piece of that. And that's the human element. And so I I just want the people out there to know, like when you see Heather, you know, and Heather, you talked about this on my show, right? And, And when you see people like me that, you know, run these companies and are having this level of success, like pure failure, like pure failure on the way to that success, like so many mistakes, so many mistakes, so many setbacks, so many moments of doubt. There's been so many times where I've shared publicly, like a big goal that I was setting. And then afterwards, I'm like, why? Like, why can I put that back in my mouth? Why? Why did that just come out of my mouth? Like it just accidentally, because I was so passionate. I like said the thing out loud that no one was supposed to hear because I didn't know how to do it. Right. So, yeah. So, I mean, I think the big thing I just want entrepreneurs to know as you build your business that if it's going a little slower than you thought it would, or if it feels hard or you're dealing with some stress along the way, that is you building the muscles that you need to get to where you want to go. You're not doing it wrong. You're not failing. You're actually right where you need to be learning the exact things that you said that you wanted to learn so that you can get to where you want to go. And I just want to keep repeating that message over and over again, because, you know, having crossed that bridge, what I'm seeing now, because I do coach so many people on building their businesses is it's actually a perception gap that is killing so many businesses right now. And it's the perception of what does it take to be successful versus what it looks like to be successful. And I believe that if we close that perception gap and people understand the amount of trial and error, even with mentorship, even with coaching, businesses can't be built in theory. They can only be built on the field, in the trenches every day. And I think if we're able to close that perception gap, I think many more people are going to make their dreams come true. And that's what my goal is. You know, what's interesting to me about what you just said, and and I'm really curious how you're going to answer this. In my opinion, there's a big difference between working with someone, a hypothetical client, right? And they're saying to you, Kelly, this isn't getting off the ground. I'm trying so hard and it's not working. And, you know, you're cheering them on and trying to get them to work through these low moments. Like you're saying that you've had, that I certainly have had. For me, the pandemic was like the biggest low moment ever. My business got crushed and disappeared overnight. So we've all been in these really delicate moments where you do consider giving up. You do say, do I trash this business and start something new? What is that difference between someone who's just way off the mark and it's not going to work or versus, hey, you got to grind this out and push through? Yeah, that's such a good question. So I think that there's a difference between what we want to sell to someone versus what someone is interested and willing to buy. And that is a huge distinction that I see a lot of people get stuck in. They'll say, I see that this group of people really needs ABC XYZ. Well, guess what? 
If that group of people really needs ABC, XYZ, but they don't give a crap and they're not willing to spend their money on it and they're not interested in solving that problem, it doesn't matter that the problem exists. It doesn't matter that your perception of the problem is that it needs to be fixed. All that matters is, is this a problem that that group of people is both aware of, invested in correcting, and willing to put their money behind, right? And so I do think, Heather, that there is times where people's passion or heart gets confused with actually making a match between market viability and desire to sell something that people are willing to spend money on. And that's where I think it's really important. You can take your passion and you can apply your passion in a thousand different ways. You need to make sure. And that's actually why I'll I'll give a specific example. I started the Human Family Foundation because I really wanted to do something to give back. And I really wanted to make a meaningful difference by creating an entity of my business that was very focused on on service and philanthropy. I see a lot of business owners that they say, I really want to give back. I really want to make a difference. So they start selling to a population of people that they're dead broke. They're never going to be able to invest in their products, programs, or services. They don't have the right mindset. They would be so much better off saying, this is charity and philanthropy. This is my business. And my business can fund me doing good in the world with this thing, but trying to take, you know, blood out of a stone with a population that doesn't, they're never going to be who you want them to be just because you want to feel in your heart that you're doing something good. It doesn't work out for, for them and it doesn't work out for you. Meet a different guest each week. When starting out a new business, it's a complete pain to get through the LLC part. Taylor Brands makes it 90% easier. It's easy and affordable to get your LLC with Taylor Brands. Taylor Brands offers all the legal requirements for LLCs, such as registered agent, annual compliance, EIN, operating agreement, business license and permits, and much more. Taylor Brands walks you through each step of building a successful business and has everything you need all in one place. Bookkeeping, invoicing, business licenses and permits, business documents, bank accounts, and so much more. And our listeners will receive 35% off Taylor Brands LLC formation plans using this link, taylorbrands.com slash confidence. That's T-A-I-L-O-R-B-R-A-N-D-S dot com slash confidence. So get started today with Taylor Brands. When I started podcasting, an online store was the furthest thing from my mind. Now I'm selling my group coaching on the regular, and it is just so easy, all because I use Shopify. (laughs) Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to, did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soaps or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling. Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. 
and sell more with less effort. Thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. I didn't know what I was going to do when I got fired. Launching my own business seemed so intimidating. I didn't know how to set up a website, and I really didn't need to. Shopify does it all for you, and they make it so easy. It was that breakthrough moment for me that I realized I can do this. I can go to work for myself. Thanks to Shopify. What I love about Shopify is you don't need to have all this technology information ready to, you don't need to know how to plan and run things. You just need to go to the platform, turn it on and know what you're selling. And Shopify is going to help you figure out the rest. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's and Brooklinen and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries, including your girl right here. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash monahan all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash Monahan now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Monahan. No matter what stage you're at, they're going to make it easy. The one thing I needed that we all need is we need a story. We need momentum. People buy into stories and momentum more than they buy into products. Like we're the business plan. And when I started out, I started out in the music business. I had a record out on a label called Delicious Vinyl. And right when my album came out, I, I did uh, Club MTV, which is a big show on MTV at the time. I was 21 years old. And I thought like, wow, man, mom, I made it. I'm on MTV. This is unbelievable. And I did my first show in Pittsburgh. And I got off the airplane in Pittsburgh. And when I got off the airplane, there was a huge newsstand. And on the cover of this big magazine called Rap Pages at the time was my picture. And I'm like, Holy shit. I'm on the cover of rap pages. And I'm like, I'm like, this is unbelievable. That was like being on Forbes for Sarah. Like I'm on rap pages. And I go and I get the magazine and the cover of the magazine with my picture on it was, um, are white rappers ruining hip hop? That I have wasn't not the, heard this story. Well, I want to tell you, but they married me. So, <laughs> I'm kidding. So, so I needed a story. I needed a story. So for me, at that age, you know, it wasn't about when I had an idea of telling people. It was about getting momentum. And I went to the New York Knicks with an idea to do a theme song for the Knicks. I was 22 years old. And I said, you know, sports is changing. People sit in, in seats for three hours in an, in an arena, but the game is only 48 minutes. So you have to entertain him for over two hours. Let's do a song and a video, and we'll get all the celebrities in New York. The song was called Go New York Go, and the Knicks paid me $4,000 for the song. And by the time I paid the studio, the engineer, the singer, the producer, the drummer, it cost me $4,800 to do the song. <laughs> so is that a good business model? No. Right. They paid me 4000 They paid me 4000 It cost me $4,800. Do you guys think that's a good business model? Wrong. That's an amazing business model. Because I would have paid the Knicks, right. I would have paid the Knicks $5,000 to do the song for them, to help me get to point B faster. Because now I had a story. And I could call up the Bulls and be like, I did the Knicks song. And every team that came into Madison Square Garden was like, why don't we have a song like that? And that was what really jump-started my career. So for me, it's like, how do you get from A to B the fastest? And then you 
wrote and produced a song for the NBA that actually won an Emmy. I did. And then you created a company, another company out of this concept, right? So it actually was a good business model losing $5,000. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, we figured out the business model after that. It wasn't sustainable, but it got me in the door and it got me momentum. And, you know, I always tell people that ask me if they're stuck, if they're overwhelmed, small wins. Just, you know, even in this race I just ran, there were, we all go through this period in any part of our journey where we're overwhelmed with self-doubt. Anybody, no matter what you're doing, even as a parent, as an entrepreneur, as a marketer, someone's bad. I'm not good enough. I don't have what it takes. Whatever. We go through this period of self-doubt. I had it in my race. I started off, I was like, I could run four miles. And once you get momentum and you start to believe and you can, you can have something that you can build on, that's super powerful. I mean, I would say to add to that, I, I recognize that the two biggest fears that we all have as human beings are basically the fear of public speaking and the fear of being embarrassed. And um, so I want that to lose its power over me. So I will intentionally embarrass myself or I will intentionally find scenarios where I'm not good at something. And then uh, I, I go through it. And it usually ends up making me laugh. Or if something ridiculous happens to me, I am I immediately want to share it with people because then I start to find that it loses its power over me. And then you also find that when these things happen, if you can make somebody else laugh or smile, then it was wasn't all in vain. And that's where real human vulnerability and connection happens, especially even with your customers. So I learned that from selling fax machines. I mean, anytime I tried to act perfect or put on the perfect pitch, I got kicked out time and time again. You know, if I walked in and was like, look, I'm, you know, I'm nervous. It's hard for me to walk through your door. I'm sorry. I know there's no soliciting sign. I mean, I would get farther with that. But just calling out the humanness and the real of what we're all dealing with and not not being afraid of it. So we do that at Spanx too. We have oops meetings at Spanx um, where we have the whole company get together and we stand up and we share what we failed at or an oops or a mistake that we made and everybody claps and it's just like diffuses it. So I do some executive coaching, not a lot, but I have a select few clients I work with. I try to keep it only to under five clients a quarter that I work with. And two different things happened with some clients in the last month that I wanted to share that I thought was interesting. One, and I've talked to you about this before, there is no place for emotion in business. None. That's taken us back to the woman that fired me. It was completely emotional. Her stock got crushed and, you know... It's just, it's hard when you make a decision based on emotion in business, you will live to regret it. So when someone gives really constructive feedback and it's harsh, sometimes people have a hard time swallowing that pill, right? I've talked about that on the show before. You know, I've had people somewhat attack me, but, you know, say, hey, I'm not attacking you. I'm just giving you feedback, but maybe not position it in the best light. And it's a little painful to swallow that. Well, one of my clients had been running around at the holiday time, 9 million things going on, end of year going on, and a big meeting was coming up. And she delegated a lot to her team and whatnot. And come to day of, she, you know, she realized she hadn't gone through the paces and checks and balances that she normally would, which happens to all of us sometimes, right? You know, no, no harm, no foul. 
And she goes into the meeting, and this was a really high-profile potential client, not yet a client. And she sits down to make the pitch, which she's done a million times, and she's incredibly successful and brilliant. And she starts leading the meeting. And the client or potential client stops her and says, well, what about this? You haven't mentioned this when she did the overview of what they were going to cover. And she didn't have what he was asking for. So right there, she realized, wait a minute, we didn't qualify correctly on the front end, right? So going into anything, for example, I'm giving a keynote tomorrow for an MLM company. I qualify ahead of time, 9 million times. Just want to make sure that we're on the same page. What is the end result and goal that you have in mind for my keynote? And I had her articulated again. Heather, I want my team motivated, inspired, and I also want them to have tactical tips around social media promotion and tactical tips around sales and sales drivers. So I've written that down 800 times, so I'm crystal clear so I can deliver. My client realized that in all of the hurry and hustle that she had going on, no one had actually had that conversation. So I'm asking you right now for any clients that you have, any business that you're working on, make sure to qualify it first. You know, get clear on expectations on the front end. That's the most important thing to do in your pre-work. And then put it back in writing so that everybody's on the same page. Anyway, she made a mistake. Happens to all of us. And she's in the meeting and realizing, holy cow, we blew this. This is a huge opportunity. We've lost it. But she, you know, she made her way through the meeting, and I'm sure she did a great job, but they weren't able to answer the one thing that the client really had wanted, the one outcome he had really wanted, because they didn't come prepared. Now, that didn't mean they couldn't circle back with him after, of course, and they would, and that was basically what they said, because that's all they could say. They, they weren't at their office, you know, they were at off-site remote location. They said, well, circle back with all of that after. We'd like to, you know, move on to the things that we can address and cover today, and we will get back with you. So it's a bust. And after she leaves, right, she had traveled to see the client. She traveled, brought her team to see the client, right, all these things. And now she needed the follow-up was really going to be instrumental. And she was very frustrated with herself that she had let this happen. So she gets an email from the potential client that night, and it was super harsh, you know, basically saying, listen, it, you somewhat wasted my time, and I don't know how you didn't understand this is what I wanted and or needed. It, you know, it's really unfortunate, and frankly, I'm really shocked that, you know, as the expert I perceive you as, that you would make a fumble like this. It was something really rough. I'm probably not even doing it justice. And so my client was emotional. She felt angry, offended. Totally happens. First of all, when that happens, never respond in the moment, ever. And my client didn't either. She actually sent me a 911 text and said, hey, I need to get an emergency session on the book in the next 24 hours. Something critical came up. Where can you fit me in? And we made it happen. And she explained to me everything that was going on. That was smart. When you feel really emotional, pause. Number one, I wait 24 hours to respond to anything when I'm emotional. And that always pays off. Don't respond. Even in my personal life, I do this too. I did this when I was upset with my son last night and I decided I was just going to sleep on it, even though I was really upset at the time. And I felt differently this morning, you know, having some time to process it and, and be rested. So pause first and foremost. Secondly, if you have a trusted advisor that you can reach out to, someone who's an expert in arena that, you know, you're, you're having some struggles in, tap that person for help. But don't just tap some random person because they're not going to be able to help you and they're probably going to give you bad advice. Okay. So we get on the phone. She takes me through everything. I'm listening. To, now I have no emotion around this, right? Because 
I'm a bystander. I didn't not qualify it. I wasn't in the meeting. I didn't get the email from the potential client and I'm not suffering the potential loss, right? My client is. So that was really interesting too, because I had no zero emotional charge around the email when she read it to me. It wasn't sent to me. It was sent to her, of course. So I processed it from an objective standpoint, only looking at, okay, fair point. He's right. You know, we didn't qualify ahead of time. He's right. In some ways we did waste his time. I saw it through a lot of the lens of, oof, you know, he's being really harsh, but he is right. Factually speaking, she did not process it that way. But when I shared with her the lens at which I saw it through, she did understand, right? And she calmed down a little bit, but she kept, you know, circling back to, yeah, but did he have to speak to me like that in the email? And you know, she was still emotionally charged and upset. So I said, listen, here's the bottom line. Do you want to close this piece of business or not? That's step one. You've got to determine that because right now, the way you're acting, it sounds like you don't like you don't. And that's okay. I remember learning early on in my career. If you don't want to work with somebody, just don't put the effort in, right? If, if there's not a match or if they disrespect you or treat you poorly, whatever it is, You don't have to take every piece of business. You don't have to let people treat you a certain way. You can respect and create your own boundaries and and you decide, right? You can fire clients. You don't have to entertain clients if you don't like the exchange with them. That is fine. And so that was my first question to her. She said, no, I want this business. It's flipping huge. It'll be my biggest client. I said, okay, so we're, we're clear. The goal here is to close this business, correct? And she says, yes. Okay, then you need to step away from emotion. Now, put yourself in his shoes. He was upset. He he lost time. He lost time from his family. He had traveled, right? So we started trying to empathize with his situation. I said, now, here's what I would do. I would fall on the sword. I would respond and say, I hear everything you're saying, and you are right. It is really embarrassing that I did not qualify this, and it's like a rookie mistake. However, I have 25-plus years of expertise in this industry, which is unacceptable. And I so appreciate you taking the time to give me the feedback, to send me this email. Because here's the thing, guys. When he sent the email to her, yes, he might have been pissed. Yes, he might have wanted to get it off his chest. But he's also engaging with her. To me, that's a buying sign, right? When I look at it objectively, he's wanting to do business with her. He didn't have to send her an email complaining about that. He could have just gone on with his merry little life and never spoken to her again. So I opened her eyes to the idea, this is a buying sign. He wants to work with you, but he has to get this upset off his chest. So fall on the sword, take full ownership, make zero excuses. One of the things I hated about this whole Rachel Hollis thing last year where she had this big social blow up with her team and whatnot, she kept blaming her team for things on social media. That is not a leader, right? It doesn't matter if your team blew something up, you are in charge. So we talked about that. Own everything. Don't blame anyone. Own everything yourself. Be grateful for the feedback because that means it's a buying sign and he's engaging with you, right? And we're grateful for that. And thank him. He didn't have to offer the feedback. It's also going to disarm someone. So when someone's angry and upset, they're going to lash out more and more. When we agree with them, apologize for the mistakes that we've made because they are honest mistakes. You know, we didn't intend to do that. That's a fine situation to apologize because we didn't want to waste his time. Certainly, we want to earn his business. And then thank him for taking the time to give us a feedback. So she decided to move forward with that strategy. And then I said one last thing. I would also suggest adding on as a close. You always want to have a call to action, you know, at any type of follow-up. And so I said, in the call to action here, I would want to include when is a good day for me to fly to you, not for you to go anywhere, not for you to waste any time, but for me to fly to you so I can apologize to you face-to-face 
and I can present the missing material that you were so looking for in that. You know, that's just going the extra mile, showing that I am a true partner. I'm someone that shows up and you matter. I see you. And then I said, because I'm over the top, I said, find out what this guy drinks or find out like what special this guy, get it immediately and overnight it so he has it tomorrow with a card saying thank you for, you know, talking with me about this. Just little things like that really make a big difference because a lot of people don't do them. So she did move forward with the plan and he ended up when he, when she fell on the sword, you know, and she owned it. She apologized, and then she closed with that call to action. Then she sent the, I think it was a bottle of whiskey or something, I don't know, and he got it. He called her and said, oh, my gosh, your response was so kind, so empathetic, and I feel like a jerk. I was a little too harsh on you. So do you see how that mental jujitsu works, right, when you really are just so kind and understanding and accepting and owning what went wrong? That other person says, oof. I guess I shouldn't have been so harsh on you in that email. And now he's apologizing to her. Of course he gave her the other meeting. Of course he was willing to do it at a time that worked for her. And of course, in the end, she gets a deal. So that's just an interesting business example that is really around qualifying expectations on the front end, making sure we do our pre-work, right? Have a checklist so that you don't forget things like that. And then when things do go wrong, and they will, right? They go wrong for me all the time. I'm always making mistakes and learning you know, own it. Don't dodge it. Oh my gosh, the lady that I used to work with that ended up firing me, she would never own mistakes. Never. Capital N, never. And it was such a flawed character. It was a character flaw in her as a leader that held her back from being a true leader. And everybody saw it. She, you know, she'd never want to say, this is acceptable responsibility, the reason why the company's not doing well. No, it was always, this division isn't doing this right, this one is not doing. And people don't respect leaders like that. If you want to lead, you've got to be willing to fall on the sword. Meet a different guest each week. If we think about tensions in our career, we have a lot of times the same things we've actually, Wendy and I have seen in strategic discussions with executives, you have this tension between today or tomorrow. Meaning, am I putting my time, energy, commitment in hitting my current goals, which is means performing, or am I looking at how I'm developing, continuing to learn, thinking about what the next step is going to be? And because Wendy and I see so many of these kinds of tensions, not as oppos- purely as oppositions, but as interwoven, well, if you're thinking about the future, it does inform and shape the choices you make today just as the work that you're doing today helps you really think about enabling serendipity or plan luck and thinking towards the future. So that both and thinking thinks about today, tomorrow, family, work, confidence, fear, right, as interwoven opposites that actually we need to work through those tensions and learn from. How can you break down with the example of like fear and confidence? Like what are the steps that somebody takes to do that? I think fear and confidence is an interesting one. I I mean, I was thinking about this, Heather, particularly because of your focus. I think confidence is such a beautifully paradoxical phenomenon. And so here's what I mean by that. You don't get confidence by sitting in a room, keeping the bar low, trying to just mind your own business. You're never going to build the belief in yourself until you put yourself out there. I mean, Brene Brown certainly talks about that, this paradoxical interplay between confidence or courage and vulnerability. I think to me, confidence is very similar in that you build 
You learn about yourself, you develop your capabilities, and you certainly grow your confidence through failures as well as successes, right? By knowing what, what's possible. So when we think about both and thinking, we, we think about a couple of things. One is we start with saying, you've got to change the kind of questions you ask. If you're always saying, right, should I be brave or should I be vulnerable? You're missing the point because they go together, right? How do you start to change this point of how do I build confidence by putting myself out there in uncomfortable situations, by learning through my successes and failures, right? Kind of pushing in these opposing ways. So to us, changing the question is absolutely vital. We then also push ourselves and, and the leaders that we work with to kind of think about how do you take those opposing sides and dive deeply into each one of them? How do you really understand where, what are your fears coming from? Right? Where do you feel your insecurities? How do you kind of wrap your arms around what's on that side? And at the same time, when you think about your courage, where are your strengths? Right, That deeping, actually dividing and really thinking further about both helps you then step back and say, and how do I pull them together? What's my higher purpose? How am I holding these in a, a synergistic format that lets me think, what am I capable of if I really push forward? And then I think from changing the question to the separating connection, how do you start to walk the tightrope and learn through this process? Because it is such a journey. So you're not looking for a one-off answer. You know it's going to continue. You're going to make a decision today, but in paradoxical tensions, the underlying issue is going to resurface. And that's okay. That's some of how we build some awareness of what's working in our world, what's working for ourselves, and I think build that strength. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, borrowing, Everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. I want you to know that finding ways to be more efficient, cut costs, and get rid of errors and mistakes can completely transform your business, boost your performance at the same time. This is why you need NetSuite now. Now, through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to netsuite.com slash Monahan. netsuite.com slash Monahan. NetSuite.com slash Monahan. CBDistillery.com is giving you an exclusive offer, and it's huge right now. You can get up to 30% off everything. If you've struggled with sleep, stress, or pain after physical activity, CBDistillery.com has a targeted plant-powered solution just for you. I love hearing how many of you have seen improvement in your daily life, thanks to CBD. So if better sleep 
more calm, and relief from discomfort after physical activity sounds good to you, you should explore CBD. Don't miss this massive sale and get up to 30% off your order. Visit cbdistillery.com and enter VIP. That's cbdistillery.com and enter VIP at cbdistillery.com. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, and South Dakota. There are people that um, live well, you know, if, if we say that this is a roller coaster journey, and I think that I heard the best expression to define this roller coaster journey by Ben Horvitz from a Christian Horvitz uh, venture capital firm. And he used to be a CEO of a startup. And he was once asked whether or not he was sleeping well at night as a CEO and he said, oh, yeah, I slept like a baby. I woke up every two hours and cried. <laughs> This is the reality of the roller coaster journey, right? And this is something that we need to realize. There is one part that people don't appreciate. The attitude towards risk and change is different for entrepreneurs. They are looking for the change. They want to change things. They want to change the world. They want to change. They want to create an impact. And they are willing to take the risk because uh, not all of them are successful, right? In fact, most of them are not. And the reality is that many people are risk averse. They don't want to take risk, right? They prefer to go into corporate America where they prefer to have stability rather than roller coaster journey. And therefore, not everyone should be entrepreneurs and it doesn't fit all the people. One of the things that I found really interesting that you had attributed some of your ability to take on risk and, and your strength and resilience stemmed from your childhood with your father. Can you share a little bit about how your father impacted you? You know, I think that was at the time I, you know, no one realized that. right. And uh, But when I would come to my dad with a crazy idea, he would say, why don't you give it a try? And, um, and the most important part is that you were just encouraged to try something new that you haven't done before, right? And, and obviously, in many of those cases, it didn't work, right? And there was no judgment because the encouragement to take risks or to try new things or to do something, even if it's crazy, but actually go and do that, has to be supported with the no judgment. And this is how you create lower fear of failures, right? Because every time that I try something, there was no judgment, right? If it didn't work, it did not discourage me from the next time to try something even crazier or something completely different. And usually the way that we grow our kids is totally wrong in that sense, right? We expect them to bring A plus. And if they bring F, then we punish them, right? And this is totally wrong. We, instead of encourage them to try new things and fail, we essentially discourage them and, and they become afraid to fail. And if you're afraid to fail, then you're not going to try new things. So true. And, you know, even the way that you're explaining raising children, my career in corporate America was very similar. Yes, Heather, go try to change and innovate, but no surprises. Don't allow for any opportunity to drop any balls. Make sure we're still going to hit the P&L goals for the quarter. And as long as you can do it within that window, everything is fine. So there are all these, like you're saying, judgments and conditions that are really opposing the opportunity to innovate. So how do you as an entrepreneur, even with that background, with your father supporting you to try things and, and embrace failure, how do you know when you start a company or, or start a concept that, okay, this has gone too far. It's not working. I need to give up on this now. 
You know, for a second, I would say that entrepreneurs will never know when it's time to quit, right? One of the most significant behaviors of entrepreneurs is, is the greed, is the perseverance, right? Is the never giving up attitude. And it goes together with the passion and the mission that is totally engaged with the, with this journey, right? And so if you look at what is the most important behaviors of entrepreneurs, never giving up is, an, is number one. Okay. There are probably more into that, but never giving up is the most critical one. And an entrepreneur will never give up. They simply don't have that in their dictionary. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Did you ever feel when you were starting ways that, oh my gosh, this the challenge ahead of us is so big. I feel like I want to, I'm just not going to allow myself or that idea never even crossed your mind. You know, the journey starts with falling in love with the problem, right? With really falling in love and actually defining that mission as your life mission, right? And, and what happens throughout well, the journey is that number one, you don't remain in love for that forever, right? You hopefully you change that into other passions and other area, but you don't remain in love forever. The number two is that you face challenges that you had no clue that are going to, you know, show around the corner. And what happened is that you get your perseverance from two factors. Number one, the mission, you know, helping drivers to avoid traffic jams. It's a big task, but it's also a mission. And when you have that in your mind, you feel like, you know, this is my mission in life. This is exactly what I'm going to do. The world is going to become a better place if I'm successful in that. And I want to do that. The second part is your teammates. So they sign up for your journey and they want to go into this journey with you. And you are committed to them the same way that they are committed to you. And so the team and the mission are the one that actually helps you to go through the hardship and the challenging periods of this journey. And, and look, all the startups have hard times, right? A lot of hard times. A lot of hard times is an understatement, yes. And I think people oftentimes lose sight of that because they only see the glossy highlight reel on social media, which can be so challenging. We don't think of Google as a company that struggled at the beginning, right? But they actually were unable to raise capital. And they approached Yahoo at the time and asked Yahoo to acquire them because they were unable to raise capital, right? And Yahoo asked how much, and they said that $2 million, $2 million, not $2 billion, not $2 trillion, just $2 million. And Yahoo said no. So you look at it today and you say, big mistake, right? We actually don't know that. For a second, I would say there are right decisions or no decisions. Because when we make a decision, we don't know what it would be like if we, if we would choose a different path, right? So we don't know what would have happened if Yahoo would have said yes. We simply don't know that. We want to believe that Google will remain whatever it is today, but that part, we don't know. So all the companies struggled at the beginning and, and you know, the Waze journey was pretty similar. Now, we started in 2007 and the real magic of Waze is that we, the drivers, crowdsource everything that is being used by the application. So we, the drivers, generate traffic information, okay? And we get that. 
we generate the information about speed traps and accidents and additional information we get. We, the drivers, create the map. So when we started, the map was a blank page. There was absolutely nothing on the map. And the first driver drove, we collected from the device the GPS data. And if we take this GPS data and draw that on this blank page, we're starting to get something like look, look like all the roads that this person drove and all the turns that this person did and so forth. And if we start to take that from a lot of drivers, we are getting something that looks like a map and we have built the software to create the map out of this data. And the map at the beginning is not good enough. It takes time for the, for the map to become good enough. And during this period of time, we had no traction because everyone liked the story. We, the drivers, are going to help the rest of the drivers to avoid traffic jams, right? So you are ready to sign up to this uh, mission. And then you try it and it's not good enough. And so you give up. Right? And we're trying that again and again and again. And every time we were doing exactly the right thing, right? So we spoke with the drivers. We understand what didn't work for them. And we build the next version knowing that we address all the issues and we know that the next version is it. And it's not. And we're doing it all over again, whole year of iterations and until it eventually becomes good enough. And that was three and a half years from, from the day that we started until we were, you know, good enough to the level that you would download the app in LA and you'd say, wait a minute, this is awesome. Or this is good enough for me. Or this is actually valuable. When we think of product market feed in bringing value to your customers, there is only one metric, retention. People are coming back. If you create value for them, they will come back. If you don't create value for them, they will not come back. You know, at the beginning, they didn't come back, right? It was, it was, it was really bad. It was embarrassingly bad. And it's evolved and improved, evolved and improved, evolved and improved the whole year of iterations until it becomes good enough. Um, and this is really the reality of, of figuring out product market fit. It's an iterative process. Now, I call that journey of failures, and, and the entire startup is a journey of failures. Now, if you think of what does it mean, journey of failures, then I want you to think of the following, right? And, and these are two critical conclusions. If you are afraid to fail, then in reality, you already failed because you're not going to try. Albert Einstein used to say that if you haven't failed that because you haven't tried anything new before, if you will try new things, you will fail. As simple as that. The immediate conclusions out of that is that, wait a minute, if I'm due to fail multiple times, then the faster that I fail, I actually increase my likelihood of being successful because I still have enough time and enough resources to try something else, to make another attempt another version, another improvement, another attempt, another version, and so forth. And the faster that you do that, you actually buy yourself enough time for another attempt. Now, it's quite obvious that if, you, if you're going to make more attempts, then you increase the likelihood of being successful, as simple as that. This is really important. So once you realize that this is your journey, then you actually have an opportunity to go and improve in the process of building your startup, in the process of figuring out product market fit, in the process of later on figuring out your growth strategy. Because in many cases, I ask people, so, so exactly how, how are you going to go to the market with that? And they will tell me, I'm going to put uh, Facebook ads. Okay, maybe. And if it doesn't work, then they don't know. Right? The reality is that if you will build a marketing plan with 50 different actions that you're going to take, what I would say is, okay, now you have 
50 different experiments that you are going to make until you find one that does work. And this is the beauty of this journey. You are looking for one thing that does work. And that one thing is actually, number one, creates or, or it's a make or break for your journey. Number two, it buys you a ticket to the next part of the journey of building your startup. Hi, I'm here to tell you about a new podcast that I am so excited about, Negotiate Your Best Life, hosted by Rebecca Zung, a part of the Yap Media Network. As a globally renowned narcissist negotiation expert and an attorney recognized by U.S. News as a best lawyer in America, Rebecca shares her invaluable insights and strategies for navigating life's toughest negotiations. By drawing from her own experiences and the wisdom of her high-profile guests, such as Bob Proctor, Mark Victor Hansen, John Gordon, and Rebecca delivers empowering advice that will inspire you to reclaim control of your life. Negotiate Your Best Life is all about how to negotiate your way to greatness. She provides practical guidance on how to break free from toxic relationships, stand up against injustice, and transform chaos into freedom, possibility, and purpose. Many times, the first negotiation you do is with your own in the morning. In the morning is when you wake up, and that's when Negotiate Your Best Life is time for you. It's about to find your way to greatness, conquering obstacles, and creating the life you truly deserve. Get ready to slay thrive and unlock your full potential. Don't believe me? I'm going to go ahead and share some of the reviews that are out there so you can hear and you can believe too. You have helped me so much these last few weeks. I was with a narcissist for two years. She drove me to the point I wanted to take my own life. Listening to you has made a massive difference and now I know what I'm with. Thank you, Rebecca. Now the recovery. Thank you for gifting the knowledge to believe in myself again. You have unknowingly helped me legally represent myself through criminal, federal, and civil court proceedings with a narcissist. There would be so many people around the world that you're helping without even knowing like me. You saved my life. Emma, 35 years old, Australia. If you are ready to stand up against injustice and transform the chaos in your life into freedom, possibility, and purpose, then check out Negotiate Your Best Life now. Subscribe to Negotiate Your Best Life with Rebecca Zung on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform.